welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Greetings, citizens. Welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Takei, and this is the interview segment. Joining us today is Sam Rosenthal, the founder and CEO of a game studio called The Game Band, which is a pretty dope name if I've ever heard one. Uh, it's a award-winning studio that's responsible for two games, uh, Where Cards Fall and the Virality that is the game Blaseball, which if you haven't heard about, you'll sure for sure know about after today's episode. Sam Studio is backed by VCs like Makers and 1UP, and today we'll be focusing on what Blaseball is, and in my opinion, it's the closest thing to a mile, a massively interactive live event, without any of the buzzword tech gadgets, cloud gaming, Twitch-integrated gaming, blockchain that we purportedly need to create those experiences. So we'll be talking about Blaseball and the studio itself. So welcome to the pod, Sam. Thanks very much for having me. Woo! Um, and so before we get started on the episode, um, reiterating and sharing a few announcements regarding GDC. Uh, first, Novik will be co-hosting a party with Lean Plum next week on March 23rd at 8 p.m. We've already announced this, but sharing once more on air. We have 200 limited spots, so if you'd like to come meet some of the Novik folks and then hang out with um, us and network with some of the industry's best, RSVP in the link below in the show notes. Second, um, some of you guys might remember our Crypto Skepticism podcast that we hosted earlier this fall, and I'm delighted to share that we'll be continuing the conversation at GDC this year in panel format. On Tuesday, we'll be closing out the Free-to-Play Summit, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. with myself, Ethan Levy, Doff's number one crypto kid, Tim Morton, the CEO of Frost Giant, and one more addition, Mark Otero, CEO and founder of Azra Games. We're going to have a rigorous debate about the good, the bad, skepticism, and optimism of Web3 games. Once more, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. post two great talks you also shouldn't miss by Don Norbury of Shrapnel and David Fox of Double Coconut. You can find details about the panel, which is titled Do Video Games Need the Blockchain on schedule.gdcconf.com or by using the link in the show notes below. So Sam, I apologize. I had to do a little bit of the, the GDC shilling, um, <laughs> but... I gave you a brief overview, but I would love to have you introduce yourself a bit more robustly. Tell us about your background prior to the game band and how you founded the studio. Sure. So I'm Sam. I'm the founder and CEO of the game band. Um, the game band has actually been around for some time. I founded it back in 2015, and you know we've had a a fairly unusual history. Um, we weren't venture backed until 2021, so we actually spent our first well, I guess you know five or so years um, working as a publisher-funded studio. So we had a, a game, Where Cards Fall, that was actually it began its life as my student project back when I was in college, and I kept working on it. After I took a variety of different jobs in the games industry, um, I worked at Activision for some time. I worked at a smaller studio called Giant Sparrow for a little bit too, um, and eventually it became one of the launch titles for Apple Arcade. Uh, Blaseball, what we're going to talk a lot about today. It began as a side project to see if we could find a way to design a game that could bring people together during the pandemic. And it uh, it took off in ways that we never expected. Um, it attracted venture funding, which made a lot more sense for the type of game that Placeball is and completely transformed the way that we've been thinking about the studio. That's awesome. And I would love actually, first of all, an amazing story in terms of uh, the impetus and the birth of the studio. I think a lot of studios that we hear about today are commonly almost the reverse. They have venture back mm -hmm. funding and then they're looking the publisher route. So you're a bit of the, you know, you're a bit old school, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to kind of hear, you know, why Blaseball seems more venture backable than, um, you know, from the investor perspective. But before we kind of go there, you know, I want to kind of talk about Blaseball um, in general. And to start out, I admittedly have not played baseball. I've only observed people who play baseball, which I guess is the sort of the point. Um, I think like, you know, 99% of the people who watch the NBA don't play basketball. But 
I struggle to describe baseball to others. I've always been like, hey, have you heard of this game called baseball? And the person's like, no. And then I'm like, well. And then I spew this discursive and circuitous nonsensical summary where I'm like, oh, it's baseball, but on a web browser and there's murder and people have weird stats and the developers fuck with everything. And it's kind of funny. And it's sort of like <laughs> Twitch plays Pokemon. Um, and then my summary is all accurate, not very good. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us what baseball is in your own words? I think the best way to think about baseball is like a massively multiplayer tabletop role playing game. So on the surface, baseball is this absurdist horror baseball league, and it is powered by a simulation and the players or the fans, they, they get to jump in and watch these simulated games unfold. They can bet fake money on the games and they can cash in their earnings to vote to enact change in the league. And those changes can range from like rule changes, like adding an extra base uh, to more mysterious changes, like opening the forbidden book, which uh, they did. And it led to players getting incinerated all across the league. And so that's the part that feels kind of like a, a tabletop game. You know, they, um, mm-hmm. They're watching these kind of uh, random and simulated events unfold, and and they're choosing what is interesting to them. And then they uh, they're telling us like, hey, this is the thing that we want to change. And then we improvise with them and uh, enact their change in the game. And it gives them this feeling of of um, ownership over the story in a way that very few games have. Got it. And I want to dig a ton deeper into community interaction, but before we go there, what? exactly do the players do like what is the moment to moment gameplay you just talked about like voting and you know opening the Mm -hmm. forbidden book but am i is it a third person rpg where i walk through a room and i find the forbidden book and i open it you know describe the actual like yeah yeah mechanics of the game what does it optically kind of look like so you're playing as a fan. So unlike you know MLB The Show or so, you're not stepping up to the plate and swinging the bat. Uh, you are watching the league and and changing it. Um, the way that that actually works in practice is it sort of plays out like an idle game or a clicker game where you are you know you're seeing these these simulated games that look almost like. Almost like if you're following along with the game on, say, a sports app on your iPhone, where you can see the the game logs oh. and the scores change and things like that. Um, it's very UI driven. And then what the fans do is they uh, they can bet just by clicking like a bet button on the games. We show the odds and things like that. Um, and then you know they can check back in throughout the day to see what they've won. And mm-hmm. th- we have a tab where they can vote. And, and every week we have different uh, different election items up for vote. So the the game itself, the thing that's really important to take away is that it is live. Like it is a game that happens twenty four hours a day in real time. Uh, so it is not something that you could you know sit down and like play for six hours to get ahead of anybody else. You are seeing the same things as every other player and seeing the results of of your choices at the same time as they do. Got it. So it is very much like that Twitch plays Pokemon habituated behavior where like if I'm in if it's baseball season and I'm sitting in science class uh, I'm playing baseball because it's not like I can play when I go home I need to be tracking live stats just like I'd be tracking or watching you know a live football game or a soccer game or something like that right Mm -hmm. absolutely and so how do I win there's I guess winning is a it's a tough one because you're what you're really trying to do is is help your team win. So every every okay. pl- a fan is a fan of a particular team. We have teams like the Baltimore Crabs and the Kansas City Breathmans. They all have like ridiculous names, and <laughs> we have these seasons that last uh, one week. So uh, throughout the week, you're, you're helping your team in various ways or, or watching what your uh, your your choices did. And at the end of the week, you make new choices to help them win the next week. Um, so that's part of winning. But then the other part of it that is that there's this overarching story that uh, the fans get get attached to. Um, in our very first, we, we call kind of a, a storyline an era. So in our very first era of baseball, the fans were fighting this giant peanut god and they had to find a way to defeat the peanut god. So there's also this like big giant plot and through line outside of just the the you know week by week can i win the season 
Okay, I see. And so I would ostensibly just choose a team, the Kansas City Breathments, because my friends are rooting for the Kansas City Breathments. Are or do I switch and rotate teams throughout seasons? How does that how does that work? You can switch if you want to, but we tell players to just follow their heart and pick the team <laughs> that resonates the most with them. Uh, the funny thing is that. Every team has developed its its own culture. So, you know, the teams right now, they uh, the fans they organize in the in our Discord. There, uh, there's a lot of a lot of fans in our Discord, and our Discord is set up to to basically have channels for each individual team. So, if you jump in and you're a fan of the Kansas City Breathments, you're just going to see the channel for the Kansas City Breathments, and you'll start to see like the the slogans and you know the uh, what players they're attached to, their voting strategy, all of that stuff um, right within there. And, and most of that developed organically. You know, there's some little bits of flavor and and texture that we gave to these teams at the beginning, but a lot of it is through how the fans are interpreting what they're seeing. I see. Okay. So to just wrap my head around this, and now that I can give a better non-discursive summary of baseball, baseball is kind of like the Hunger Games, um, where you're not actually playing as Katniss or any of the people that are in the actual battle itself. You're like on the outside. You're the capital, the people with the weird hair and the and the weird makeup. And you basically like have a favorite team or a favorite you know, Hunger Games, like a Katniss, and you basically are doing everything in your power to influence what happens like on the actual battle stage. So that might be sending something like a care package to Katniss or the Kansas City Breathments. And you and the fans that are aligned behind this one team are basically trying to intervene into the natural course of events that might be already occurring. Is that a better way? That is a great pitch. And I kind of want to just steal that because I think that's one of the more succinct ways that I've ever heard somebody describe what what the baseball experience is like. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad that I didn't mess it up for <laughs> that I under that I understand. Um, because I think it's just, it's really interesting. It's like you know when we've talked about a lot of like what are the opportunities that cloud gaming or blockchain or anything can provide. A lot of this is like okay, what new genres of game development can we unlock using these technologies? But I'm really interested, obviously, in this 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 fascination because it doesn't sound like at least from the surface that you guys are using any of those to really drive the actual underlying tech stack of the game itself. But before we kind of get into that, um, you know, I think the, 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 co- the coolest thing, honestly, about baseball is just the level of community interaction that you guys have been able to generate and the fandom around the actual, the seasons and, and the teams, et cetera. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you have all of your fans grouped up in Discord, um, but you can you share a little bit more about like how they actually, how they participate what do they, how do they lead coalitions to enact changes? Does it, is it almost like a <laughs> guild system in World of Warcraft, right? Just share a little bit more about the specific, what buttons am I clicking? Um, who, what other players am I cajoling into doing other things? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning, we were relying entirely on Discord for the community layer. And we're starting to uh, build some some more integrated community features based on the top behaviors that we were seeing in in the Discord. And, uh, you know, it ranges. Like, not every fan wants to do the same thing. There's certain, certain fans that want to be, like, strategy people. And they come up with these amazing voting guides. I'll have like spreadsheets and Excel that they share across the, the other fans of the team. Um, they would blast on social media, these like kind of propaganda like posters to get people to vote for the things that they wanted them to vote for. And uh, so that was really their MO was like, how do we optimize our team? How do we give ourselves the best mm-hmm. chance of, of winning? Then we have other fans that are more interested in coming up with with uh, stories and background stories for the different different characters in the game. So, you know, we may have uh, like one of our classic baseball players, Jessica Telephone, um, inspired all sorts of, of fan <laughs> stories and background information just based on the little bits of, of, uh, of it's funny. You know, I sometimes I forget like how insane it, it sounds for me to just say something like Jessica Telephone because I say it a thousand times a day. But <laughs> things like it a thousand times a day. But yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just um, Such no, a I, name. I, I mean, I get it. <laughs> oh, it's not. Not even close to our more our most ridiculous names too, um, but anyway, yeah. So 
you know, some of the of the fans love to write backstories and come up with fan art. Um, since we don't actually show any of the characters in the game, the uh, it, we leave leave the fans to show to tell us what they're seeing and to come up with their own artwork um, to to create like a wide variety of interpretations. Um, and that also leads to you know, while none of that stuff is canon, it. it gives the game a lot of soul and texture and makes it feel mm-hmm. like you're witnessing this thing that so many people are getting something slightly different out of. Oh, that's really, that's really fascinating. Especially the part that you didn't even start with like base art in a way that that's really, really interesting because I think one of the things um, I, I, I looked at a company or know of a company that I looked at over the summer that's called um, 555 games and they're basically building like interwoven anime comics into like social media feeds. And cool. it's this idea that people are like shipping and creating backstories for someone like Jessica Telephone. But that stuff is happening like in the comments, like, oh, like can't believe she went out last Thursday. And then you're like, oh, Jessica went out last Thursday. Like, I wonder what she was doing. And then someone else comments in the comments, like, yeah, I saw her at the Dusty Shack. <laughs> and then yep, you have yep. this like spiraling story out of that. And I find that to be like, especially like with the fact that there was like no art or, you know, like and in that regard, right? Like, so. Do you guys empower specific community creators who are maybe like the most active? Um, let's just say you have an artist that's, you know, been making character art for all these guys, you know, do you compensate that person? Do you, and how do you, do you motivate them? Are they just doing it out of their own, their own goodwill? Um, so right now uh, we, we do our best to feature any community art uh, that we, we really love like just through like general retweets and such on our social accounts. Um, but we try or we try to also, you know, incentivize people that, uh, don't get seen a lot too, to, you know, to feel comfortable sharing. One of the interesting community behaviors that we saw was that, um, things that kind of feel like contests are, um, are not, they, they don't feel great for, for our fans at least. Mm-hmm. It starts to make it feel like, the reason that we're creating is to get seen or to get you know a certain type of recognition, uh, which actually goes against usually their initial motivation, which is just because they like the game and have a, an idea that they want to share with other fans of the game. Um, so we, you know, that's a it's a fine line for us to balance. But so far, we haven't we haven't uh, needed to like really latch onto like one or two particular creators because there's been so many people making so many so much. Art and uh, and stories around baseball. Got it. And how how did the first person start? I think this is like one of the conundrums of yeah, a community or a user generated content wheel where you mm-hmm. have so many people starting. Can you walk me through like meeting your guys's first creator? Right, because now it seems like it's easy. You know, you have this army of people that are just rabid baseball fans that are like, "Oh no, my picture, no my backstory." Right, but how did it start <laughs> in the very, very beginning? I guess you sense like you launched it during the pandemic, right? So, twenty twenty ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, we play test a lot as a studio, so I think our first fans were people that we just shared the game with that uh, that liked it and told their friends about it uh, before it came out. You know, we, we made the game very quickly, but from the beginning, we had a, a Discord server up to just have a, a level of community engagement with it. Um, and we saw early on, like one of the reasons that we decided to, to keep making it is, you know, we make all sorts of prototypes at the studio that we, that never see the light of day. Um, but this one, the the people that were coming and playing were were telling stories and were getting really invested in these fictional characters, even people that like you know that I know in real life that I had never expected to uh, to latch onto those parts of the game. So that, that's when we really knew we were onto something. Um, when we first launched the game, it, the first week didn't have a ton of signups, but uh, it had a, a few, and the people that jumped into it loved it and talked about it nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those really important first first players was a, a writer for Vice who wrote an article about it after that first week. And I think that article brought in a lot of people for the second week. Um, and then from then on, it was a lot of like kind of finding communities that uh, that were slightly adjacent to us. You know, we we had a uh, a sponsor early on from it was Friends at the Table, which is a popular like tabletop role playing game style podcast, and they loved the game, asked to sponsor it. Their audience jumped on board and loved it. So that kind of thing, you know, it was 
it was just like finding like just sl- slowly like branching out and getting uh, getting more and more people that would naturally be predisposed to liking this type of thing. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, I think it's just always so interesting. Like, how did you get that first start? Um, where did you in the slope to exponential growth? Like, where did the when did it begin, and what was the impetus for for that? And it sounds like you got very lucky and that somebody happened to join your community that happened to be a journalist, um, which is, which is very, very cool. And, um, and then it kind of grew from there. Um, and it sounds like from the very beginning you were working and playing with your community, but I think some of the frictions that we often see with community and studio partnered games are when the developer wants to do something that the community doesn't want them to do. Um, and so how have you guys, you know, kind of wrangled with the idea of maybe deeply disagreeing with something that the community has done? Are there any off limits like signposts? Yeah, that's definitely been something that we've, we've struggled with before. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, I wouldn't say that we've completely figured it out yet, but what mm-hmm. we're, we're at least trying to do is be very clear about what the community's role is in the experience. So, you know, if we go back to that tabletop role-playing game metaphor, um, in a tabletop game, there's kind of three storytellers. There's the game masters that are setting the stage and guiding the experience. Uh, There's the players themselves who are saying, like, I want to go into that cave or I want to attack that enemy and and showing the game master what they're excited about. Uh, And then there's the role of the dice. And in our case, you know, we have us, the game designers, playing the roles of the game masters. We have the fans, and we have the simulation, which is our stand-in for for the role of the dice. And when you th- view it like that, you know, you wouldn't expect a player in a tabletop role-playing game to be able to say, "I I don't want to be in a fantasy world. I want to be in a science fiction world." Like that's off limits. We've already set the stage. We know where we are right now. Um, so you know what. We, uh, we do our best to kind of establish boundaries and to really explain what the constraints are and the possibility space is at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and what about even like an, like a, let's just take Jessica Telephone, for example. Um, how does the studio, I might ask a hard question, but like, let's just say, or maybe not Jessica Telephone, but any another character, right? Let, let's just say they make that person, um, I don't know, a Nazi. How do you, how do, how, what happens now? Yeah. Um, so we have an amazing, amazing team of community designers and community moderators that uh, work around the clock to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen. And if it does, uh, we get rid of it as soon as we possibly can. Um, we've taken a real, uh, a really firm stance very early on. You know, we just don't allow any hate speech or anything that even get, comes anywhere near that in our, in our community. Um, and I think like by having those clear guidelines and having clear principles from the beginning, uh, you know, it, it doesn't feel like there's a moving target. It feels like everybody knows what they're signing up for. And if they're not on board, then they're going to get kicked out. I see. And do you kind of cancel that action and also correspondingly cancel the player and their account? Or do you do more of a like, hey, tap on the, like slap on the wrist, um, be careful, don't do this kind of thing again. You can still stay a part of our community, but you know, if you do this one more time, you're out. It's usually the latter, but it depends on what the offense is. You know, if mm-hmm. it's something like your, your Nazi example, we're going to take a, a more serious, uh, a serious route than if it's something that's just kind of slightly inappropriate. Interesting. Yeah, I think like the community involvement with games has been some of the biggest. It's it's one of the biggest like gifts and boons that has been given to game development. We know that games like Half Life and stuff like that came from community develop and an iteration maybe on like the platform the developer gave them, but it's still, there's still a ton of recalcitrance from, you know, a triple a developer community to be so influenced by the community. Right. Because in, at the end of the day, like there's, you know, designers think that, you know, they know best, right. Not, not the community versus, you know, but I think baseball in a, in a cool way is built, is built to take input from the community in a way that there's still guardrails, there's still game master, um, and yet it's so so it still feels like safe and organized and not just like a bunch of chaos where nothing where nothing makes sense, right? Like you know, Jessica Telephone is a crazy is a crazy funny character, but um, you know, it still seems organized, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read last year Sid Meier's memoir, and he has a chapter in there where he talks about. 
uh, how he's very resistant to to mod support and I think cheat codes uh, early on in his games, and then uh, eventually warmed up to it when he started to realize just like the amazing variations and permutations that the that that the community started to create around his games. And you know, I think that's one of the most special things about this forum. Um, is that when you put it out there, it, it starts to kind of become a dialogue where you right. never really know everything about what you've created when it's a game because games are interactive and uh, the way that players play them is going to be different and the things that they get out of them is going to be different. And uh, and fostering a space for them to express what they're seeing and, and what they love in the game uh, in the game design itself is is really, really rewarding. Um, you know, we always are looking for ways to provide for, to provide players with just as much meaningful choice as they possibly can have in the game, um, which means that by necessity, we can't control everything because a choice isn't interesting if, uh, you know, if we're only giving you like three outcomes that we very carefully tailored. Hmm. Got it. And so, okay, so the, there's a ton of community interaction so how does the community interaction influence the, kind of moving away from only talking about the community to more about like how do you actually build and like live ops this game, right? From the conversation so far, can tell and discern that uh, place ball structured in seasons, right? Um, mm-hmm. How do you plan patching? How do you plan updates given there's such a high level of participation? How do you let your audience know that this season is about to happen and ensure that people like don't feel upset because they've missed it because they missed some announcement. Can you share a little bit about like how you're running baseball kind of as a, as a live game? Yeah. So, uh, in the past we ran baseball in this, this era structure where we'd run a full era of the game, which was typically a few months long. And we would have, you know, 10 plus seasons or so in that era, each season being a week long. Uh, then we would go on what we call a siesta to develop <laughs> the next era. <laughs> and then we come back with another one. Um, we're working really hard right now to get out of, to get out of that structure because mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's not, particularly sustainable, you know, to have like these very long gaps where the game isn't live um, and then to come back for a brief period of time and then to go away again. It, there's a lot of challenges that I'm sure, you know, you've already started to hit the nail on the head on. Like, how do you keep people in, informed about when when they can come back? Um, what happens when you, if you're a new interested fan and you go to the game and there's there's nothing to play? Um, so our goal is to to always have a version of baseball that is that is live and interesting uh, and compelling for new players to jump into as well. Um, we're working towards it right now. Uh, we have started off with our, our new version of the game. We ran a few seasons and we have an, kind of an upgraded version coming out. Um, we haven't announced the time frame yet, but pretty soon that uh, you know, hopefully if, if we're doing our jobs right, once it's it's back up again, uh, we were going to have a lot a lot less downtime until the point where we have none. Got it. Interesting. Um, I would suspect also that uh, since players are kind of voting through quorum for a lot of factions, right? You know, you need to vote within 24 hours of this item. And I live in Asia and it's the day ahead mm-hmm. and it's not Saturday, it's Sunday or whatever this problem is. And so I think that's probably like been a very hard thing to, to manage, right? And so in that regard, how have you really tried to? F- are there are there been specific tricks or tools that you've used to facilitate like the community involvement, or do you really kind of leave that to those to each team, right, um, in the Discord to figure out on their own? Yeah. So one of the major focuses for this uh, this latest version of baseball is surfing and seeing this the schedule a lot more since it's a game that mm. is played on a fixed schedule. Um, and you know we use all sorts of. of of a helpful tools to get people to know when, when things are happening um, through social, through email messages, uh, push notifications when the mobile app is out. Um, so all, all of that. But yes, the game itself is pretty time zone specific right now. Uh, you know, most of our players are in North America, uh, but we do have a good bid in the UK as well. Uh, not too many in, in Asia just yet. Um, but that means that, you know, we're, we're tailoring the, the game mostly to to those time zones. Uh, now, as far as how we would you know potentially make something that is more global, it probably can't look and feel exactly like what we've done with with baseball so far. Um, you know, we could certainly adapt baseball for for different audiences. 
uh, and like you have different sports leagues around around the world. Um, but we're interested right now in, in trying to to figure out what a uh, an experience that takes a lot of kind of the heart and soul of baseball is that that is designed to be played on more of a, a global scale. Hmm. I have. A- I think you're, this is just me going out on a limb here, but I watch a lot of anime. I watch a lot of sports animes, and Japan loves yeah. baseball. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> baseball would do great in Japan. Um, I feel because, the same way. <laughs> oh, perfect! Uh, I uh, I think that there there is kind of like that. Um, you almost it's you almost see it kind of in sports animes like Haiku mm-hmm. and which is about volleyball and like um whatever Prince of Tennis, uh, where you have this kind of like fandom around supporting a specific team. And it's also kind of ridiculous because then there's a murder in the high school uh-huh. and <laughs> it gets all perfectly feeding in, in there. And But I think, you know, uh, to go back to, your, to the point of uh, where your communities are in the West and, and the UK, um, you know, how do you guys plan as a development studio to kind of live ops that? Because if your team is basically running a 24-hour, you know, all-week sprint on the season... Right. And if you're, you know, not staffed in that in that region, how do you think about like making giving that that live feeling if you don't have devs that are awake to react to what the community does? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that we've done is we set particular events at, you know, very prescribed times to react to what the community does then. Okay. So uh, you know, an example would be like our elections. Our elections are at the exact same time every single week. Uh, so you know. I've been making choices all throughout the week. I've been voting for my the choice that I want to win, and I know exactly when I'm going to find out if it wins. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you know, we get to we get to very um, we get to prepare for for when those results are coming in. And uh, you know, behind the scenes, we know it's going to come in ahead of time um, because we can see the results coming in. Then uh, we also one of our, our famous storytelling devices is we have these full takeovers of the site where uh, the gods of, of baseball appear and talk in real time to the fans. And those are are also, uh, they're opportunities for us to, whenever we, we feel like it's um, appropriate to jump in and, and react to, to what the fans are doing. Um, but as far as like, yeah, how do we, you know, if something happens in the middle of the night or so, Typically, we're finding out first thing in the morning and figuring out how we can react to it based on one of the events that we already have scheduled. So, you know, we okay, maybe we have three or four hours into the next structured scheduled event. How can we tie in uh, a, pos- a positive or uh, exciting, you know, reaction to it? Then, um, that said, though, on the community moderation side, we have overnight moderators as well who okay. just work work in shifts so that uh, we can moderate the community 24-7. Do you mind sharing maybe an example story of like waking up in the morning and like reacting to something the community has done and being like, oh shit, like we got to, like, do you, <laughs> can you share any like any stories about what that might actually be like? Oh my God. Um, it's usually, I'm not sure I remember ex- like one in particular, but I, I mean, there's been several points where we wake up and like a popular character is dead and you know, it's like, okay, popular character is dead. Uh, how do we make sure that the whole audience knows about this? And what does that mean for, uh, for, for the, you know, the story itself? Um, you know, usually the characters themselves aren't like, the story isn't wrapped around any particular character, but you know it might create some opportunities for us to uh, to think about you know ways to surface exciting abilities from other characters or give certain certain uh, teams abilities and things like that for the election down the road. Got it. Yeah, this it reminds me a lot of like in the Twitch Plays Pokemon where they released apps, whatever it is, like the starter, <laughs> the starter uh-huh. Charmander or whatever, and like the community voted to release the starter Pokemon, which just like you know, just like <gasps> yeah, like my yeah. heart has been stabbed, right? And it's kind of like you wake up every morning, and and I think in that regard, it's probably like a very hard thing as a de- development studio to be doing because it sounds almost like you're basically like you're you're style of working is basically being on these like periodic sprint cycles of just like, yeah. okay, like this one is like, it's almost like um, production, right. Of just being on yeah. like, live ops. Right. And instead of people playing content that you post actively have created, it's like they're everything's happening all at the same time. Um, but uh, I bet it's a pretty exciting thing to basically be like, all right, I'm going to bed. I wonder what's going to happen. Like, will Jessica be alive tomorrow? Um, it's exciting and stressful because cool. yeah. it, it can feel for us like very hard to pull away um, because, you know, at any point you could be 
looking at the game and seeing interesting, exciting stories. We are working right now, uh, you know, I can't give any specifics, but on ways for, for at least our development team to have basically like a much clearer picture uh, of, of exciting things that are happening in the game whenever they happen without needing to do so much manual work. Got it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so then... Uh, when I, I guess this is going to go back to the main question of you know why baseball is is I guess backable, but where does monetization come into this at all? Has are you guys thinking about that? What kind of monetization does the game currently survive on? It isn't in the game yet, but it is coming very soon. Uh, we've okay. been working on it for a long time. Um, the the first the first uh, versions of it are going to be primarily around cosmetics. So we are building in a lot of cosmetic. Uh, well, community features into the game to support cosmetics. Um, I can't really give too many specifics yet, but the, they're they're essentially around these collectible pins that you can use in the in the community layer. That's coming into the game pretty soon. Um, the second part that we're exploring a lot right now is on. I'm trying to think about how I can talk about this without a without <laughs> going too specific. But you know, if you think about with live sports, um, we go into a lot of these live sporting events and we pay for things that uh, that happen once while we're there. You, know, you might spend money to get a message on the Jumbotron. You might spend money to get a uh, a really great seat in the game that you know might increase your chance of getting on the scoreboard or something like that. Those are the types of things that um, you know, we're looking to like the real world analogy and how we can how we can replicate it here. So yeah, to back up for a second, we've been working for a long time on the monetization. It isn't in there yet, um, as the game is just kind of slowly coming back online. But we'll have uh, we'll have the cosmetics in there pretty soon to for people to play with. Oh, that's fascinating. I'd never thought about the. The jumbotron and 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 things like that, which I think is really 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 interesting. Um, and I think it also a lot of this it kind of begs the question as to, you know, we have been talking about blockchain games for forever, right? And we're like, oh, mm-hmm. like what genre of game works with blockchain games? Is it Web three card games because cards make sense because there's some sort of physical in the in the real world you physically own your cards, so why would you own the digital ones? Or is it a game that has a strong community and therefore you issue a token and compensate your community through, you know, token equity, right? And so how in this like, you know, huge, you know, up and down volatility of crypto, FTX, whatever, have you guys thought about any of incorporating any kind of blockchain elements? And if so, why or why not? Yeah. Um, you know, we typically, when we look at new technologies, we go, okay, can this make our game better? And if it can make our game better, we adopt it. If it can't make our game better or we can't see a natural path for it, we don't adopt it. And with with uh, crypto and blockchains, we haven't found anything obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the a lot of the uh, the solutions that we've seen so far, they don't feel like they are making the players experience any better. You know, it, you can maybe earn money while you while you play the game, but um, that's not what our players are here for. They're here because they want to have fun and, and enjoy the experience. Um, so that would sort of almost like change the incentive structure of the game. Uh, so that w- that wouldn't really work for us. Um, and yeah, outside of it too, like it's to get something that you could then potentially sell or, or have like some sort of act of commerce that comes out of it, uh, is just, it's a motivation that I hear a lot more in, I guess like in the tech world than like the games world. When I talk to pe- to our players and to people that like love games, you just don't hear, hear people talk about that that much. Um, and we're uh, we're skeptical <laughs> for to to say the least. You should come to the panel at five thirty to six thirty <laughs> to talk, voice yeah, your opinions. <laughs> um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I just it's, it's more just wondering because it's it's a very um, this like voting and quorum and ta- and player influence is I think one of the value propositions that I think a mm-hmm. lot of blockchain and um, evangelists kind of doubt for is like yeah like organize in, into supporting a specific team or organize into supporting a specific commodity price and push it up like using you know diplomatic tactics or your voting rights that is attached to your token which i think is um you know in a way does impl- have implications on game design right because if you set up that kind of economic structure you have a nudge and a le- that you didn't used to have before in in game design right so it's just curious to hear sort yeah. of your opinions on it we um we find that for the most part any of the 
the kind of blockchain-based game ideas that we've seen so far could also be done without the blockchain. And you know, we have all of those those uh, those structures in the game itself right now. You, know, you can mm-hmm. vote. You can. We have um, you know uh, uh, communities built into the game. We have uh, unlockable rewards. You can. You, you know, you can watch a, a simulated league and participate, and like all of that stuff, um, you know, is working on servers, and it, it's not requiring you know any a, any form of uh, of blockchain at all. Um, you know, I I think like there have been so many times where a technological breakthrough comes in where it's immediately obvious what the applications are for for games you know when uh, 3d rendering became a thing and, and nintendo uh, showed us what that can do with you know with uh, uh, super mario 64 um, obvious application even baseball itself is taking things like discord and you know these ex- and these existing technologies and putting them together in a way that creates a form that is very new um, I'm eager to see if anybody comes up with anything that uh, that you know creates a better game with with blockchain. But it's been around for a while now, and I haven't seen it yet. And I think that's where a lot of my skepticism is going in. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of really good game designers who haven't yet figured out like something brand new that can come with this. Sure, I, that's 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 very fair. Um, and so I think uh, you know, given that we're you know want to. Talk a little bit, you know. Talked a lot about baseball, but talked not as much about this about the studio and being a studio founder. Um, you know, you've actually been running the studio for a long time, right? You said that you founded the studio in 2015, initially got publishing money, and then raised venture capital in in, in 2020. Um, how have you done? Uh, maybe combated like you know attracting talent, um, competing with the AAA world. Um, how big is your team right now? Uh, can you share a little bit about sort of like the the studio journey? Yeah, absolutely. So we are about 27 people right now, and we uh, we actually are very fortunate with talent in that there's a lot of great people that uh, that have come to us. Um, some of them from our community, which is wonderful. You know, we have a really talented community. A lot of folks that were in, you know, engineers already, um, developing tools and such around Placeball that were eager to to come work for us. Um, but also, you know, one of the things that we felt really worked well. Is that this is baseball is built on web and app frameworks, and and we're working on a mobile app that's built on a tech stack that is more familiar to people in the tech world than is to people in the video game world. So that meant that we could go and you know, to all these tech companies and find folks that always dreamed of working on video games but never had the opportunity to because their skill set didn't match. So huh. we have this really amazing mixture of people on our team uh, from both worlds, and I think it it leads to. Just this really interesting, interesting mesh of of talent and conversations, and um, and, and it's great to see. Uh, our director of engineering came from came from the tech world. Uh, we have a a lot of designers and such that came from that world as well, and uh, it, it's fun to it's fun to see what's shared between the two, and also fun to see like a lot of the things that break down are just like jargon and, and you know, different terms for the same thing. Huh. Um, do you, if I, I'm going to follow up a little bit there, so I assume that means that you might be writing in a different code code base. So you're not writing necessarily like in C plus plus or C sharp, right? Because you're on. The, is that part of it? I think of like a, um, a lot of engineers that I know, like software engineers in general, like don't know the languages that a lot of games are written in, which very much disenfranchises them into like catching up. Like you can't go work yeah. on Unreal or Unity if you don't know these languages, right? So. Totally. Yeah, we were, you know, a Unity studio by trade. And then uh, we completely shifted when we went to Blazeball. Um, so yeah, you know, Blazeball is built on like the mobile apps in React Native, or you know, we're using React on the on the site, um, mm-hmm. JavaScript and such. And like these are TypeScript, like these are not um not tool sets or or, uh, or frameworks that are familiar to game makers, but they are very familiar to, you know, anybody working in, in the tech world. So it's, it's kind of the reverse, you know, in our case. And, uh, and for us, that's really played to our advantage. No, that's a fantastic and very interesting talent edge. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are trying to sell like the dream, right? Like, oh, like you're always get to work on games, but you're kind of 
knocking on the door of all the same people. And those people actually have eight offers, you know, one's from Riot and one's from Bungie yeah, and then one's yeah. from <laughs> Respawn. And you're like, okay, well, how am I going to get these guys? And so I think you've, you guys have really been quite clever and, and sort of like gone fishing in a different, in a different pond, which is, which is really, really yeah. cool. Um, and so, you know, you again, like have been out here for, for seven years and there's an environment right now where there's a lot of, you know, X Blizzard, X Riot, X EA founders that are taking a crack at making new games at either venture back studios or with back by publishing money. Um, you know, sort of what advice would you give to, to these new studio founders who maybe have started up in the past, like two to three years? I would say, uh, you know, embrace the unexpected. Um, the only reason that the game band is still around today is because we were willing to take a chance on a game that was completely different than the one that we had made before and uh, and kind of reinvent ourselves. And you know, this industry changes like every six months drastically. And uh, I think it's really important, especially as a small company, to develop a way that uh, you can quickly adapt and quickly change as, as the tides turn. Um, you know, we are really focused right now on making, on being nimble, you know, making things that are fast to make and really creative and really interesting. Um, but, you know, it won't take us four or five years because by the time that a game like that comes out, you know, it could, it could be irrelevant based on where the industry goes. Hmm. Okay. And so then now I'm going to ask the leading question. I think, you know, you said that you only raised venture money in 2020. Um, is it perhaps the fast iteration that was appealing to a venture capital studio? Because that's more like classic lean launch pad, product launch dev cycles of like tech products, right? Like fail fast, move and, and sprint. So, you know, this is the, also the, I guess the, uh, my, what I'm asking to you is more, you know, what, what made Blazeball since it also doesn't really have a monetization system, backable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> monetization yet, right? So um, you know, backable from the, from the VC side, right? A lot of founders are out there trying to raise their first price round right now. So Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that worked really well in our favor is that it's completely new. You know, there's nothing out there in like Blaseball. Um, and we have the opportunity to define this category of entertainment and, and be the leader in it. And uh, that means that we're going to have to experiment and explore a little bit more than, you know, if we were going and making something that was uh, very similar to something out there. So when we talk about monetization, we are in monetization exploration mode right now, trying to understand what works best for this style of experience, rather than just doubling down and optimizing on a bunch of, you know, existing things. Like we can't just slap a battle pass on it and expect it to work. We have to go back to the drawing board a little bit and see what really feels native. Um, but I think that is very exciting. You know, if we if we succeed, then you know, we have proven an alternate path, and we have defined an entirely new type of genre, and uh, hopefully brought in a much broader and more diverse player base than games typically are able to reach. That, that's that's I think that's so on the money. I think, and as a business person um, who has you know, help to try to support the monetization models of games and evolve them over time to adapt to a specific kind of player base. I think that's totally spot on. Like, you know, uh, you can't, crypto tried to build economies first, the games afters, you know, AAA mostly builds the game first and is like, well, like, ah, if we make it, they will come. Um, and then you kind of have like this like non-integrated feeling of how the business model doesn't really link to the gameplay or like what that consumer base even values. And so I think that's an awesome evolution to see like a studio grow into focusing on, on, on that. Um, and so I guess as like, as a final question, sort of, you know, what's, uh, what's next for, for, for Blazeball, um, you know, besides monetization, you mentioned the tabletop thing, you know, is, are you guys, is there an idea to make a board game or will you guys just double down on the, on the franchise as it stands right now? So there is a card game that, uh, is, is coming out fairly soon as well. We're very excited about it. Worked with some, some friends of ours on it. Um, but yeah, you know, outside of that, we, the game is, is starting back up pretty soon. Mobile app is coming out very soon. Monetization will follow. The integrated community features will follow. There's a lot that we've been working on for a long time that is you know, finally going to start to make its way into the game um, that we're really, really excited about. Uh, we've learned a lot about the types of things that work within Voiceful and the types of things that don't within work within voice pulse are really excited to to test out all of our ideas on on how to make it even better 
Okay. And if I've been totally convinced by this podcast, which everybody should be, that baseball should be my my new game that I'm going to try, uh, when can, when's the next season starting? When can I play next? Soon. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I can't give you an exact date. Is it, is it a blizzard? Um, is it a blizzard soon TM or like an actual, <laughs> is it a soon? <laughs> it's soon. We're, we're, it's going to be soon. Um, but go on to, to blazeball.com and sign up. You'll be able to get emails, uh, email updates to find out when it's coming back. Join our Discord and follow us on, on Twitter. How we're very active there too. That's awesome. All right. Well, Sam, it was truly a, truly a pleasure having you on. And um, I know you're coming to GDC, so I'm excited to, to, to meet in person. Um, and if and if anyone in the audience here is actually more curious about the game band's mission and how they lead their vibrant community, um, Sam, I believe one of your community members is giving a talk also at GDC. Um, can you share a few more details? Yeah, Bria, our community director, is giving a talk at GDC. Uh, she is giving a talk on fandom as a whole and all of our learnings about fandom through through making baseball. It's a really good talk. I've seen it, of course. <laughs> Strongly endorse. Um, you should definitely go see it. What what day? What time? <laughs> I don't I don't think GDC has announced the exact schedule yet, but um, yeah. So I guess just stay stay tuned for it. Okay, so all right, everybody yeah. if in the audience, if you want to check it out, go to the GDC conference website, um, mm-hmm. search the game band, and, and you should probably find it. Um, and so, you know, Sam did share like how follow the community, but if um, you know, there are people out in the audience that are really interested in connecting with you, maybe you know, like uh, they are interested in jumping ship from their AAA studio, and you know, like this is the they want to work on a genre defining game. You know, how can they how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, um, you know, feel free to, let's see, I usually would say feel free to follow me on Twitter and DM me, but I'm a lot less active there these days. Um, but that's still, I think, a pretty decent way to do it. I'm Sam Rosenthal on Twitter. I still uh, will check it at least once a week. Oh, that's good. It's, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. a lot of apps to check now. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Honestly, <laughs> it's, you're inundated with notifications. Yeah. Okay, so this is epic. Um, And so thank you to our listeners. Um, We hope to see some of you at GDC at any of the panel sessions or events. Reminder, there's a Novik event on Thursday, the 23rd. Um, My panel, uh, which will close at the Free-to-Play Summit on Tuesday. And then a game band talk, uh, which you can, on an undetermined time and date, but is on the website somewhere. Um, And so until next time, friends, uh, feel free to hit me up at alexandra at novic.co. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, would love to hear your feedback. And with that, au revoir. See you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.